from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, indeed, a welcome to you all on this, our second 150th anniversary event. Um, our celebration is not just looking back, although we are looking back today and also looking forward, but what we're celebrating is not only the innovation from the past 150 years that the society has been involved in, but we're also looking ahead to future innovation, because a key part of the success in the future is going to be attracting the best brains and the best hands into aerospace. Now, we um, got off to a resounding start last week on the 12th of January, the anniversary, 150th anniversary of our first meeting, and we launched our anniversary stamps and also had a debate on the uh, motion that there would be no pilots in 40 years' time. Well, I was quite surprised. Uh, I voted against the motion, uh, but I was quite surprised the motion was carried. I think the majority of the audience obviously had far more confidence in the um, infallibility of computers that I have. Um, but uh, there we are. We, we, we got going. Um, and it's quite appropriate that uh, last week we were looking forward 40 years, and tonight, we're looking back 40 years, because 40 years ago today, uh, teams were working very hard preparing for the first commercial supersonic scheduled flight. And we're going to explore that in a lot more depth here tonight. Um, we're doing it in, in two parts. Um, firstly, there's a joint lecture by David McDonald, the former BA flight engineering superintendent, uh, of the Concorde, and Captain David Rowland, former Concorde pilot and uh, flight manager. They'll look at the certification process and, and how we got started, the inaugural flight itself, how um, supersonic travel grew, and also they'll be taking a forward look about for supersonic flights as well. Then that will be followed by a question, answer, and panel discussion chaired by Captain David Rowland, and we're delighted that we've got as panel members senior flight engineer John Lydiard, a member of the original flight deck crew on the inaugural flight, captains Chris Morley, John Eames, and Tony Meadows, and together with David McDonald, um, they will be um, here answering your questions. And uh, they were all involved responsibly for planning and operation of this um, incredible first scheduled flight. So our... Lecture tonight, um, the first of the lectures will be Senior Flight Engineer David MacDonald. He began as an apprenticeship um, with BA in 1955. He moved to BAAC as a trainee flight engineer on Comet 4s in 1961, and there followed 11 years of the VC-10 fleet that included both instructor, examiner, and some front office work. Um, and then with the formation of the Concord Nucleus Group, he accepted the job of flight engineer superintendent. Um, I'll just briefly tell you about Captain David Rowland because he will be following straight on from uh, David McDonald. Um, so David Rowland flew VC-10s as co-pilot and navigator until he joined the Concorde fleet as co-pilot in 1976. And later, after obtaining his command, he became Concorde flight manager. So if I could hand over now to... David McDonald, making sure that I take all my papers with me, and none of yours. <laughs> Thanks, David. 
Well, good evening, everyone. And what a pleasant surprise this is to see so many here. Before we actually start with the business of the day, we're going to have a short prologue. Uh, I think we probably all realised that we lost André Turca earlier this month. So we thought it pertinent that if we could recall a couple of aspects that he spoke of when he presented the state of play to French industry in 1970. He divided things up into aerodynamics and he called it propulsive. So here's a quote. Aerodynamic problems arise because Concorde, like any aircraft, suffers a fall-off instability as speed increases and becomes supersonic. Furthermore, it is at these speeds that the disturbance caused by sudden engine failure will be at its greatest. And in a reference to loss of aircraft from the B-58 development programme, we cannot afford to make mistakes. We must simulate engine failures and double engine failures progressively throughout the flight envelope. We have now reached the stage of knowing that in whatever circumstances engine failure may occur, the aircraft will remain under control. On propulsion, he points to the intakes. This system of variable geometry was fully commissioned during recent grounding. It is really the big new feature of our aircraft, more so than the delta wing and the flying control system. And finally, I must repeat that our rate of progress is being dictated by prudence. We are entering a new realm, not by sudden breakthroughs, but by efficient and careful exploration. And so that was Andre Turka, who died earlier this month. So on to the business of the evening, then. We're here to celebrate or commemorate the events of January the 21st, 1976, 40 years ago tomorrow. The culmination of a long march. And I'll... I always like to remind myself where we were when a supersonic airliner was first discussed and what airplanes looked like and to wonder about those conversations at a time when the Comet 1 had just been grounded permanently and the Comet 4, four years away from service at Mach point seven. So here we see a 1954 airplane, a Douglas DC-6, and nominally that would cruise at 300 miles an hour. Along with it, the subject of these discussions, and the Concorde would cruise at 1,300 miles an hour. Key dates in this long journey, I'll start with 1956, the formation of the Supersonic Transport Aircraft Committee, 1959, when that committee reported, 1962, the Franco-British Agreement, and then 1965, when our own Captain Brian Calvert and flight engineer John Lydiard joined the project. Yes, for all of the development and testing, BOAC Flight Ops had got two men embedded into BAC, first to maintain a watching brief, and then, as the project became more secure, to ensure the airline's view was heard. Who do we see here? <laughs> Across 1974, then, a further 14 airmen were recruited to form the Nucleus Group, eight pilots and eight flight engineers. Brian and John, already steeped in the ways of BAC, knew their way around the aircraft, 
and more importantly, they knew their way around the factory. They were able to steer us unerringly to the right sort of dining facility that served sherry at lunchtime. <laughs> it was Bristol, after all. One would expect nothing less. Now, in this group, you can pick out training manager-designate Norman Todd. He flew liberators during the Second World War. In civilian life, his aircraft were Constellation Stratocruisers and an earlier Bristol product, the Britannia, before joining the teams that brought the VC-10 and then the 747 into service. Of a similar seniority, our flight engineer boss, Lou Bolton, would speak of flying boats, Comet 1, Constellations, and the Comet 4, before likewise bringing in the VC-10 and the 747. The remainder of us were cut from younger cloths. In it, we hoped, for the longer run. A disparate group of airmen, all of whom must have been totally consumed by optimism, to have relinquished good, steady employment as instructors and managers for the uncertainty of a Concorde operation. Now, why uncertainty? It is true that the bulk of exploration was already completed. By February 75, the project had soared to 68,000 feet, pushed out to Mach 2.23 and 573 knots. And with the same wing, cord, camber, twist and shake, had rattled down to 119 knots. That's right, 119. A typical snapshot of the time would have shown two aircraft working flat out on testing, soon to be joined by a third. We could see O2, the French pre-production, working on carbon brakes. 201, the first French production, flight controls and handling certification. Our own 202, BBDG, power plant handling, relights and cruise performance. And 01, AXDN, on a quest for ice. A further 900 flights and round about 2,000 hours would still be needed before certification was complete. As for ourselves, we had a date with destiny, but we didn't know at that stage where destiny would take us. Monday the 10th of February, 1975, 11 months to go. The date that Filton opened the doors to his airman's training centre. And thank goodness, the course broke no new ground. Yes, we had to contend with a slender delta, nose and visor, vortex lift, shockwave management, theta 2, eta V, super TX, super stab, super cruise, pressure breathing, reheats, primary nozzle, secondary nozzle, axel point, decel point. And what I actually meant was it was a conventional desk and chairs classroom with proper specialist lecturers at a blackboard, no group learning around a carousel or from a pad. It was a superbly presented course. The instructors had got much on their plate with design office interruptions as a spec change would be confirmed. And being course one, their manager, Peter Collard, was watching everything, ourselves assessing, and overall, the men from the ministry keeping an eye on everything. For one week only, one week only, we moved across the airfield from Filton to Patchway, from the home 
of the Bristol Aeroplane Company to that of the Bristol Aero Engine Company, now of course part of the magnificent Rolls-Royce Aero Engine Group. I liked their ethos over at Patchway. We learnt of the military engine, the Olympus 22, given reheat and called the 22R. That engine, given a new number, the 593, became our starter engine. Stage one tuning, more mass flow. Stage two tuning, turbine entry temperature, produced the 593B. Sorry, it produced the 593D for Delta. In a quest for more power and growth potential, the physical dimensions of the airplane of the engine increased two and a half inches in diameter, 10 inches in length. And this became the 593B. So do you see where I'm going with this little section? In the 22R, the R stands for reheat. In the first model 593, it was the D model. That stood for derivative, derived from the 22. And in the second evolution, the 593B, where B stood for big. <laughs> None of that alphabetic progression nonsense here. Throughout the training course, we were kept in touch with the outside world, mostly the politics of air service agreement. We knew, for instance, that an approach to FAA to include USA in endurance flights in October, had been made in October 74. That was rejected. And when I say rejected, it was more by procrastination, really. Upon graduation from Bristol, we transferred to Toulouse for a spell on the development simulator. At this stage, Air France had got Rio in the bag as an entry into service destination. New York was definitely out for now, mainly due to noise. And Captain Meadows, who's here with us tonight, joined with BAC to work on noise reduction. For ourselves, Australia had authorised Mach 2 flight across the Nullarbor Plain. And Bahrain came in as our entry into service destination. Subsonic across Europe, accelerate down the Adriatic and Mach 2 up the Mediterranean. But then where? Captain Morley, also here tonight, became diplomat and geographer to soothe the worries of Syria and Lebanon and to create the final link in the route. And I wonder if he's still available for that sort of work. <laughs> bit by bit, we were getting there. Our next immediate task was our own certification. And in our spare time, produce a full set of Concorde manuals, leaning heavily on the BAC Flight Crew Operating Manual. Aircraft 202 was temporarily withdrawn from flight test, for, and that became our base trainer at Fairford. Brief recollections of that first flight would be a total assault on the sensors. A four-engine slam acceleration in seven seconds, with 20 engine instruments whirling up to full reheated power, producing 152,000 pounds of thrust. A crazy acceleration for an airliner. The scent of Shell 555 wafting through the vents from a well-used set of engines. And then juggling with the flight engineer's chair. If I put my chair in a sensible position where I can touch everything, I couldn't see outside. If I tried to see outside, I could reach nothing. So Dennis, my BAC mentor, 
He just laughed and shook his head. Sixteen days later, I was on the road to Singapore to begin the second wave of endurance flights on a real production aircraft. It's midsummer in Bahrain, and it's stinking hot. It would make one almost wish to be French so as to swan off down to Rio. A local flight to convert to full production standard was followed by a Bahrain-Singapore route round the bottom of Sri Lanka. Over the next two to three weeks, we shared out a series of Singapore-Melbourne night stop flights, culminating with a flight check into Singapore for me on the 12th of August 1975. And that signature on that piece of paper, that day I became a fully paid-up Concorde flight engineer trained by the BAC Flight Test Centre. And I can tell you that puts a bit of a swagger in your stride. And that was a good night. So what did I learn from endurance flying? After landing the nose wheel, if the stick isn't pushed and held forward, then it's quite true when reverse power is applied, the aircraft rears up all over again. Rapid temperature shear during supersonic flight in the tropics can cause a Mach number runaway. To control it, the aircraft is pitched up into a zoom climb and even with power right back to the minimum for that altitude, with spill doors fully open, the aeroplane gallops away with overspeed warning cavalry charge filling the cockpit. And I want to say the cavalry charge is a technical term used to describe the particular note variable note of the overspeed warning, a warning familiar to a lot of people in this room. Thirdly, long shallow undulations at just the wrong point in a runway, typically Singapore, will set the fuselage vibrating at its natural frequency, two and a half hertz vertical, three and a half lateral. Couple that with a bit of vertical G and a plunging motion, and that makes for an extremely uncomfortable rough ride. Ultimately, a main undercarriage with reduced stiffness and reduced air damping was produced as a modification. Autumn and winter 75 passed in a flurry. All that we learned had to be distilled into a usable form for subsequent courses. Meetings with BAC, now as a full partner, to discuss endurance flight experiences, autopilot modifications, landing gear modifications, and how best to present emergency and abnormal drills. We kept our hand in with the simulator refresher until we bought our first aeroplane, 206 Alpha Alpha, on the 15th of January. Then we were ready. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's, um, follow that, he said. It, uh, it forced me to try and describe that first inaugural flight in some sketchy detail because the flight certainly was and had the effect of reducing travel by an enormous amount. I've got to try and compress it into 13 and a half minutes. Uh, and so I'll touch on some, just some key points. As David's already mentioned, some of the key players from that day are here this evening. will form the panel later. And you can ask them for more details. They know far more, far more about it than I do. But let me just introduce you again to the crew on that first day. This is the crew. 
It's not a picture of the crew in Alpha Alpha on that day. As those of us in the room who know, there will be questions afterwards can tell you what aircraft that was, but it wasn't Alpha Alpha. It was taken a, a while before that first flight. Sitting in the left-hand seat, Norman Todd. Davis described his background, Liberator's wartime, his history in the airline, um, and that he brought, uh, helped bring VC-10s 747 into service and became and was, when, this, uh, when the fleet came uh, into existence in 1976, the flight training manager of the Concord fleet uh, with this experience of actually introducing a new uh, aircraft into service. Uh, sadly, Norman died at the age of 80 in 2004. In the right-hand seat, Captain Brian Calvert, flight manager technical uh, with the inauguration of the fleet, uh, he'd been, as David said, involved with the aircraft from bef before it flew, uh, uh, along with John Lydiard. Uh, and he was probably uh, the most uh, deeply embedded and, uh, pilot amongst the, amongst the crew. And as David said, when they did their course, was already hugely experienced. They, he said to me, not a year or so after this event, that he and Norman agreed amicably which one would, would actually be the captain on the way out. And that was Norman, and uh, Brian Calvert was the commander on the way back the following day. Uh, nobody swapped with John. John Lydiard there in the third seat. He was in the third seat uh, both in both sectors. And John, again, his background and history goes back a long time into BOAC as a flight engineer. He joined the flight development unit also in the mid-60s, spent a lot of time getting more and more embedded with, with, with BAC, with the manufacturers, and flew as a flight test flight engineer uh, well before the aircraft was, was getting close to, to operation. So I can't think of a much more experienced crew uh, than those three to be there in charge on the day. In addition, the CEA had decided in its wisdom that uh, CEA inspector needed to fly on the flight deck for the first few flights, and so one was going to join them. But in that wonderfully British um, way of, of compromise, they appointed as a temporary inspector Brian Trubshaw. And so he was uh, able to join them on the day. Brian... Um, had to check in as a passenger and then was, was whisked across to crew report to meet up with the rest of them. Uh, and in the days well before locked flight, uh, locked flight deck doors, uh, Brian was on the flight deck or, or, or lurking, as John said earlier on, in and around it um, uh, during, during most of the flight, maybe helping supervise some of the passenger visits as well. Um, Brian Calvert sadly died all too young at the age of 72 in 2005. And I was criticised earlier for describing John Lydiard as the only surviving member of the crew. That sounds dreadful, as if there's all something... So, but but it's, it's a process of time, and John is, in fact, the, 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 one remains, um, of the, crew, well, the one remaining member of the crew who flew the aircraft on that day. In the cabin, and let's mention uh, the people who looked after the cabin on that day. That was the cabin crew on the outbound sector. There were some one or two changes of names on the inbound sector so that they could um, uh, get, gain some experience. It needs to be said that uh, when I spoke to John Hitchcock um, a short while ago, he reminded me that they actually had no experience on the aeroplane, unlike the flight deck crew. Uh, they did their course, relatively short course. They did all their SCP. They were thrown in at the deep end and uh, given this flight to operate. Um, David remembers going to a meeting with the flight catering services a short while before where they'd examined the galley and were quite over, overawed by how small everything was and what a cramped working surface, working uh, area it was, and announced in a rather serious voice that there would be no room to store crew meals. So crew would have to eat the passenger meals. <laughs> he, says he, kept, he says he kept his face straight. Um, <laughs> and it's something we did for the next 27 years. Um, and it became a real chore, but somebody had to do it. Um, 
John Hitchcock reminds me of that as they were thrown in at the deep end, and I, I, I had to read his quote because, because it, it, these are his words. And he said, I said, what was it like? And he said, pretty hectic. He paused. He said, we never had to serve a full first-class meal that fast before. We only just had man- managed to have time to get strapped in before the landing. And then he paused again and said, we did get better at it, though. And they certainly did. Our cabin crew were absolutely superb um, and served and provided a brilliant service on board to the passengers. And it has to be said to us at the front as well. That's the menu. That actually is a menu. Actually, that, John, is signed by you, the original copy of that that I've got. Um, and that, you can see what they had, pretty standard Concorde fare, really, um, and became something standard throughout the life of the aeroplane. The passengers, well, there were a mix of them. There were some fair-paying passengers. There were some guests of BA. And, of course, there were, there were, the media were there as well. There were 28 fair-paying passengers. Um, Lord and Lady Leathers had been the first to put their names on the waiting list in 1964. And they were in, in the cabin that day. Uh, the Duchess of Argyle was one of the fair-paying passengers. And that's interesting from a society point of view because her husband's grandfather was one of the founding members of the society 150 years ago. Uh, but she was in, on the list there. There were various others fair-paying passengers uh, on that day. Uh, to get the numbers and the names right, the media were also represented by, for instance, uh, Reg Turnell, who many of you will remember from the BBC reporting on aviation and, and science. Uh, he represented the BBC. Peter Sissons, who's now with the BBC, represented ITV. There were broadcast journalists from other uh, stations, including from American TV stations as well. Air Commodore Donaldson, who many of us will remember as the air correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, uh, was on board, sitting in um, 6A, so he had a seat quite near the front, um, and he wrote in the paper uh, the following day uh, as his assessment of the aviation aspects of this flying. One must sample it to believe it, for here I sit in a comfortable cabin in the calm air nearly 60,000 feet up, hurtling along faster than the speed of a cannon shell. I rather like that cannon shell concept. Eating caviar and drinking exquisite champagne that rests without a ripple on my table. This is history. I thought, for an air correspondent, that's actually a brilliant way of describing (laughs) the world's first supersonic flight. Those of us who knew Air Commodore Donaldson might not be too surprised. The... Guests of BA range from politicians, ministers of state in various departments, the department of cabinet ministers, senior uh, members of the British Airways management team, and so on. The chairman of the CAA was there, and so on. Uh, certain individuals, Leonard Cheshire VC, the Duke of Kent, who was also, as it turns out, on the last ever, on, on the, flew on not of the last ever flight, but the next to the last flight that landed at Heathrow in 2003. And from the industry, it's good to see some names that really did deserve to be there. Um, Sitting in 18B, about sort of halfway down the aeroplane, was Sir Stanley Hooker, the legendary Rolls-Royce and Bristol engine designer, uh, technical director, innovator, pioneer. Uh, He'd recently retired from Rolls-Royce where he'd helped to turn it round after that dreadful mess that it got into in the early 1970s. And it's good to see that he was on board the aeroplane and enjoyed the hospitality both on the aircraft and in the evening uh, as, a, as a prized guest, as an honoured guest in Bahrain. Also sitting just four rows in front of him was Sir George Edwards, um, again, legendary character in the aerospace industry, a past president of the Royal Aeronautical Society, 
Um, and without perhaps those two, we wouldn't perhaps have got to where we got to with Concord in the time that we did. And they are, uh, in the history of Concord, two of our, our legendary characters. I can't think of many other people who were on that flight that day who deserved to be there as much as they did. The fare-paying passengers, you can see, paid £676 return. How things change. The aircraft was on Juliet 2. Those who flew the aircraft will, often, will remember J2 and the cul-de-sac from Terminal 3. And the aircraft was, if you look closely, I've tried to look at that closely and see whether I can see John doing an external check on that, but I can't. So, but the aircraft was being prepared. And it was being prepared to a, to a very detailed operational uh, schedule, which based, was based on three basic premises. First of all, that both the British and the French aircraft would take off at exactly the same time. They would set up an open telephone line between the two towers and they would give a countdown to brakes release and the throttles being applied. And that if a delay was announced by one of the aircraft before engines start, both airlines would accept 20 minutes. After that, it was open to negotiation. And if the engines had been started, it was down to the discretion of the captain. So those, those are the basic premises. And I'll just take some extracts from the detailed ops report, which went by minute by minute, the ops planning. Um, 11.16, doors would be closed. 11.16 to 21, engines started, the first two. 11.20, Captain Todd to talk to his... Um, colleague in Air France over an open HF line so that it could be heard by the rest of the world with good wishes. 11.26, commencing taxi. There's a note in the margins against that which said the Dagenham Girl Pipers were going to play Will You Know Come Back Again. <laughs> and somebody had added, should drown out any engine noise. Yes, sir. I may note to my Scots friends, I make no apologies for that. I had nothing to do with me. 11.36 in position at the end of the runway with four minutes to spare. Both aircraft were there with four minutes to spare. And the countdown was given and at 11.40 the roll started. Exactly choreographed on time. Seen by the world, they reckon tens and tens of millions of people around the world on a split screen, particularly on, on BBC. All flights started with countdown. Three, two, one, now. Throttles were advanced, stopwatch was started. We set off down the runway. Calls uh, went airspeed building, 100 knots. Flight engineer hopefully will call power set. V1, rotate, V2, positive climb. You were airborne. They were airborne. Just a few seconds after 11.40, and the start of supersonic passenger travel had started. Brian Calvert described it as, in his usual way, he described it as a perfectly normal takeoff. I'm sure John felt the same as well. Departing from 2.8 left, it was a fine day, light westerly wind, turning left towards the south coast of to Sussex to actually climb out in the airway system, out over France and down, as David's mentioned, in the subsonic section. Um, the noise abatement involved, until then, subsonic airplanes were pretty noisy. There were BC-10s, Convairs, DC-8s. And noise abatement procedures in aircraft were a little bit relaxed in, in those sorts of aircraft. We couldn't afford that. And so the noise abatement procedure had been developed to make sure that we complied with the rules and regulations. And... Uh, Tony Meadows, as David's mentioned, will be a member of the panel later. And he, if you want to ask him any detailed questions about this, especially about how we did it in New York, then he's the person to ask. Uh, the schedule, uh, opera schedule went on and said at 12.20 to 12.40, the media would be allowed on the flight deck to make their live transmissions over HF. At 12.40 to 14.40, then lunch would be served. At 1.500, the do not disturb sign was to go on the flight deck door because they were going to be busy with the descent into Bahrain. And the plan was to be on blocks at 
It's worth just mentioning and just look, looking a quick look at a not, not very a clear map, but the French were going down off the coast of Africa and down to Rio, and our aircraft was going down across Europe, across the Mediterranean, across the Levant, and down towards Bahrain. That's the route of uh, BA300 in a bit more detail, and I'll come back to that in just a second. It might just be worth mentioning that this is already new for air traffic control and for everybody else. A, a quick look at the flight envelope, those of us familiar with it will recognise it straight away and be able to recite its, its contents. But unlike most subsonic airplanes, where they look for maximum height as soon as possible to make efficiencies in the engine um, burn, uh, we would go for um, a speed nearest the VMO, nearest the maximum indicated airspeed. Uh, so we were looking for something like later on, and certainly on these, this day, they were looking for 25,000 feet. That in itself was a bit unusual for air traffic control. Not only that, they were now doing 100 miles an hour quicker than the subsonic airplanes that were around them. So it was also already uh, a bit of a challenge getting across Europe. And Brian commented afterwards, and he's, I've heard him say, he said it to me on several occasions, he was a busy co-pilot getting through the, the, the tower changes and the radio frequency changes. Back to the map. Subsonic on the, is the dotted line down to near Venice. And those of us who flew and joined the fleet a little bit later and flew this route did, did exactly the same. So Chris Morley, who organised the route, obviously got it right and we, we benefited from his expertise. Supersonic down the Adriatic, Mark II before the heel of Italy, round to the south of Greece, south of Crete, south of Cyprus, out into the, across the Mediterranean. And at the last minute, the Syrians and... Um, Given that, and Saudis had given clearance for the flight to remain supersonic over, over Saudi Arabia. So it started this, this right-hand gradual turn at high speed uh, north of, of, of Lebanon, uh, the Morley turn, because Chris had actually drawn this with ghost waypoints, and again, he'll, if you ask him questions, he'll explain all about it later. And in a straight line down the old pipeline that many of us were familiar with in subsonic days, down to, down to Bahrain. The descent was calculated. Descents were calculated in two parts for us um, on the aeroplane, and on this day was no different, although it was relatively new. It was to decelerate for a while and then descend. And they were landing at Bahrain on this day on runway 12, more or less a straight in approach. And so the plan was to get down so there's no holding, there's no delays, there's no just go straight down, gradually reduce speed, and land. And I remember Brian not long after this telling me that. He was a little bit shocked to find that when he calculated everything, the temperature at altitude was minus 70 degrees centigrade, which is pretty cold. Uh, we were perhaps used to minus 55. The tailwind was more than they'd anticipated. And he pulled back the throttles to the intermediate slowing down stage, and not very much happened. And he said, I thought we were going to be stuck up there all day. Um, <laughs> uh, but he didn't, and they weren't, but they got above the descent profile. And so a little bit later on, a little bit of judicious use of in-flight reverse, got them back onto the profile, they landed straight in on runway 12, landed at um, 3.17 uh, in the afternoon um, GMT, 6.17 local time, having taken three hours and 37 minutes. Uh, that speedy time was obviously perhaps helped a little bit by the speedy descent that they hadn't quite planned for, but on the gate early, uh, and they'd set in motion supersonic travel, uh, which carried on in British Airways and Air France, but in British Airways through to 2003. When I come back on here, we'll just have a look at what the future may hold, but for now... I'll hand back to David. Okay, route development. <clears throat> it has always been anticipated that Concorde would earn its keep on the North Atlantic route, and that was the case. 
1975, 1976, such was the amount of antipathy and scaremongering that it became inevitable that the FAA would require a full environmental impact statement. And thus, <clears throat> thus we will have the picture. Thus, in March 75, the first draft was published, followed by public hearings in Washington and New York. And at those hearings, there was unprecedented volume of adverse response, and that led to a further edition of the environmental impact statement. It would fall to this man, William Coleman, the US Secretary of Transportation, to make a ruling. He set a date for the final hearing. Washington, January the 5th, 1976. And in a wonderful piece of diplomatic language, our government, in their submission, managed to combine the velvet glove of cooperation and harmony with the steel fist of extraordinary discriminatory actions and rights under international agreements. Pulling your punches there. One month later, February the 4th, 1976, William Coleman gave his historic decision. And make no mistake, this was an absolute key moment. It's no exaggeration to say that the work of 13 years did hang in the balance. The Coleman decision opened with, after careful deliberation, I have decided for the reasons set forth below to permit British Airways and Air France to conduct limited scheduled commercial flights into the US for a trial period not to exceed 16 months, under the limitations and restrictions set forth below. Now, if you can, I would thoroughly recommend a full reading of his report. It is a masterpiece of even-handed analysis. In his conclusion, and I quote again, given the substantial effort by French and British to initiate this technology, and that US participation may well be essential, I believe this demonstration is needed to determine whether a commitment to this new technology should be embraced. Now, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement, but it was enough, enough to get us in. Straight away, Washington services were planned. But since New York was the main target, I'm going to continue with that plot first. New York Kennedy was owned and run by the Port of New York Authority, and they had a pretty fractious relationship with nearby communities. Their view was, must the port abide by the federal decision? They thought not, and passed a resolution to ban Concord. And now I want you to stick with me, because I'm going to go through seven stages of legislation. Starting with, the two airlines went to court seeking an injunction and a ruling on the port's right to ban. And that was heard by Judge Milton Pollock. The port countered by ordering a study of six months' worth of Washington operations. Well, that would take us through to the end of 76. And then procrastination kicked in again through most of 1977. Eventually, the protagonists got back into court. Pollock rules the ban to be illegal. But the port goes to appeal, and the appeal was upheld, but with a rider stating that the judge should determine whether the ban was discriminatory 
and unreasonable. On August the 17th, 1977, Judge Milton Pollock did just that, stating that the ban was discriminatory, unreasonable, and for good measure, arbitrary, and with the aircraft deprived of the chance to prove itself. And yes, the port appealed again, and the appeal was rejected. They were ordered to stop their 19-month ban. Not finished yet, we're up to point seven. The port applied, sent an appeal to the Supreme Court, but that court declined to hear the case and would not intervene in Judge Milton Pollock's ruling. We made it. Finally, on November the 22nd, 1977, Concord service to New York began. They built rapidly to twice a day, and they lasted until 2003. And those limitations that Coleman mentioned. In summary, no aircraft movements outside 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Don't drop a boom on land and be a good neighbour. We stuck absolutely rigidly to those rules, and it must have worked because we were good neighbours for 26 years. Now, to backtrack slightly. Following that Coleman decision, services from London to Washington could start almost immediately, and they did start May the 24th, 1976. Washington was a federal airport operated by the FAA, and they reported to the Department of Transportation, so no argument there. These flights filled quickly, and as soon as practicable, we put it up to a daily service. But note, much of this traffic, to begin with, continued up to New York by a special shuttle. And such connections were also used between New York and Boston, and at a later date, New York and Washington. In that first year of Washington operations, before performance improvements to the aircraft, performance improvement modifications to the aeroplane, winter services flying into winter westerlies across the ocean were a bit tight on fuel. Step forward our fuel purchasing branch, who found us a batch of Nigerian heavy and had it stored at Heathrow for our sole use. Cracked from a, Ni from a Nigerian crude, it matched to within a couple of parameters, Jet A1. It was heavier, obviously, and gave us another 1,200 kilos or so. The downside was its dielectric properties also gave us a big underread on our 13 fuel quantity indicators, but fortunately becoming accurate at the lower levels. The back end of 1977 was almost an embarrassment of riches. And I say embarrassment because, frankly, we didn't have enough crews to support Washington, New York and Singapore. And the almost part of it, one of our nucleus group captains, and I think it was Peter Duffy, he calculated that if we based three crews in Singapore, we could do it. And so we launched. The operation was shared equally with Singapore Airlines and their cabin crew manned their flights. And as we can see here, one aircraft, Alpha Delta, was half-painted in Singapore colours. After just three services, Malaysia closed their airspace, airspace to us, citing interference with the breeding habits of fish down the Malacca Straits. <laughs> it took 13 months 
and a possible mention of air service agreement before we were able to return. We flew on until 1980. In November 1980, the route closed, a combination of poor marketing by our partners, diminishing loads, and a withdrawal of cooperation from Saudi. And it made, basically, it made the route untenable for all but occasional charters. the best picture I could find. 1978 was the year of US certification and the process was conducted between the FAA, the manufacturers and ourselves because it would be our airplanes that were affected. And it was Braniff, Braniff International who started it all with a request for a dry lease from Washington down to Dallas to try the aircraft for a year with a view to using it supersonically down to South America. During these negotiations, the FAA did come up with a pretty useful modification to flight controls, but they had huge philosophical problems with the concept of safe life on the French half of the fuselage, which is roughly from the centre doors aft. The aircraft also had to take on a dual registration and would hop from register to register during one service. They were given quick change registrations and as an example, if we took our flagship, GBOAC, as a British aircraft, this became Golf November 81 Alpha Charlie. During the turnaround at Washington, ground crew would put a sticky patch over the G and, instant, oh, and sign a piece of paper, and instantly the aircraft would become American with the registration November 81 Alpha Charlie. A novel arrangement, but we were all pleased when it came to an end. In 1981, the American question was raised again, and this time it was Federal Express, who wondered aloud, could the factory make a Concorde freighter? They looked at it, and with just minor modifications to oxygen, air conditioning, smoke detection, and landing gear free-fall controls, the answer was yes. Feasible, but bizarre. There was more happiness when this project went away as well. There was also a legacy as we began shipping quantities of high-value packages on a regular basis. It was round about this time that Her Majesty's Government discovered the Concorde support budget, a contractual arrangement with the manufacturers lurking somewhere in the MOD. Ultimately, this would be cancelled. But in the meantime, a Department of Trade and Industry report expressed extreme dissatisfaction with Concorde, stating, the project has acquired a life of its own. Now that was meant in a pejorative sense, but I've always remem remembered it fondly as a bit of an unintentional compliment. So now, just as a bit of entertainment only, I'd like to illustrate a piece of that life with the next five slides, I think it is. The date is the 24th of December, 1985. And the venue is London Heathrow and the skies above southern England. And the occasion? Well, it was the build-up to the 10th anniversary of entry into service. Now, how's that for accurate flying? 
Now, that life, that had acquired a life of its own, began to prosper in May 1982, <clears throat> when the Concorde Division was formed, importing supersonic expertise from flight operations. Their first task was another watershed moment, as the government gave notice of support funding cancellation. And incidentally, no support, no CFA, no operation. So it was important. This task culminated with British Airways buying the whole business from government. Everything with a Concorde label on it, now owned by British Airways, including support cost funding. And it was at this stage that we bought our seventh aeroplane. And I will emphasise bought, not were given. By 1984, the Washington route was beginning to struggle. And in March of that year, we extended it down to Miami, a new destination, and one with the prospect of picking up South American traffic to offer them a rapid daylight flight straight across to London. Now, I think charter work surprised a lot of people. From a few high-profile one-offs in the early years, it mushroomed in the 80s thanks to a small but highly active <coughs> charter branch embedded within the Concorde division. Possibly the first such flight may well have been Prime Minister Callaghan for a political summit in Puerto Rico, June 76. Not quite an Air Force One, but pretty cool anyway. Cool enough to do it again to Washington in 77. And then, of course, this one. Our own dear Queen and her husband returning from a Silver Jubilee tour to the Caribbean, back from Barbados to London, 2nd of November, 1977. About three years or so later, we returned to Barbados with a series of charters courtesy of Kiwoni, operating via Santa Maria in the Azores. But the aforementioned Concorde Division spotted an opening here, and as an experiment across 1987-88 winter, encouraged by Barbados and tour companies, operated a series of scheduled flights through Shannon, with traffic rights from Ireland to Barbados. Initially, it was a pared-down operation, with a co-pilot acting as loadmaster and the flight engineer doing refuelling and turnaround maintenance. It worked very well, as you can imagine. Leave a cold, wintry London at 9 o'clock in the morning. Arrive Barbados, 11 o'clock in the morning. First run, punch, 11.30. <laughs> Subjected to what was now standard fine-tuning, Barbados became the second most profitable scheduled route, catering both to high-end market and the UK summer season, ultimately becoming a non-stop flight. We did a lot of work with our good friends at Cunard, linking with the QE2 in particular during the transatlantic season and the world cruise. Passenger exchanges on the latter from Hong Kong, Singapore and Sydney. And so at last, we did actually manage to fly that classic route, London, Bahrain, Singapore, Sydney, 17 hours and three minutes. Now this phase would not be complete without mentioning our partners at Goodwood Travel, innovators par excellence, but it would take a whole lecture to cover their work. So from the World Air Cruise, 
which was an aircraft, a crew, 100 passengers tramping around the world for four weeks, calling at wonderful destinations, through to the one-hour, 40-minute experience flights, we covered the lot. And I'm going to close now with another quote. In Christopher Orlebar's book, The Concord Story, which is an excellent companion read to my own Haynes Concord Oldest Manual, <laughs> he lists 375 different airfield visits worldwide. Now, the quote is from Sir Stanley Hooker, Rolls-Royce, Bristol, BSEL. When asked why he hadn't designed and fitted an auxiliary power unit to Concord, he replied, why carry a piece of equipment through the sky at twice the speed of sound when it can just as well be left behind? I do agree with him, absolutely. But 375 destinations? Boy, wouldn't it have been useful. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we promised to look at the future as well. Um, and I also said to David that if we got to this stage, and I know you want to hear from the uh, panel members and ask them, get the chance to ask them questions. So I'm going to look at the future. And it'll be quite a quick overview, probably with more questions than answers, because that's what it's like, I think. There are more questions than answers. I was asked at the beginning, before we started, why do we call this... Um, a takeoff into the future. Concord takes off into the future. Well, it was the future then. And if you look at the BA uh, literature of the time and advertising, they mention future a lot. The future of air travel starts here. The future of supersonic travel starts here. The future of uh, aircraft uh, is supersonic and so on. The future was used a lot. Uh, and we all know that on this day in 2003, that was the day of the last commercial flight. The three, the one from New York, the one down from Edinburgh, and the round the bay, the last of those iconic short charters we used to do. So why do we call it the future, this talk about the future, when it ended then? Well, did the future end then? Well, it did for the time being, or was it just a pause? So we started to look at, and in this, in this society, in this very room, I've sat through many lectures, presentations, um, and uh, conferences about where the future of supersonic travel might go to. And I just thought I'd pose a few questions and give you a few, uh, a few views of the future. The media get very excited when they read about and see about these sort of things like Hotel and Skylon, particularly. Uh, we in the society get phone calls, can we put up a, an engineer, a pilot, or somebody to talk to the papers, the BBC, or whatever it is, if somebody's produced an article about these. And they seem a bit disappointed when you have to say to them, it's future, a long way in the future, and it's probably quite fanciful at the moment. These, certainly the top two there are driven by the, the need for single stage to orbit, the flight in low Earth orbit, and so on. Uh, they are uh, experimental. They are just concepts, although work is being done particularly with the Skylon project. Um, they are relatively small. Their payloads are relatively small. They, as in themselves, would not lead to a successful commercial venture for carrying passengers. But they could be and should be, perhaps, the vehicle uh, on which um, the future rides in order to take us to the next really quantum step. And they keep quoting Australia in 90 minutes. Australia in half an hour. They keep, uh, Australia, I don't know why everybody wants to go there in a short space of time, but <laughs> the, the, the media always... You know, would, somebody asked me today, would you, 
would you, would you like actually to be able to get to Australia in an hour and a half? I said, well, yeah, in the winter. And, um, <laughs> but they're, they, maybe they're too far ahead, even the hypersonic. Uh, again, we got calls in the society only a few weeks ago. Airbus had uh, patented a hypersonic design. So we said, yeah. And so they said, would you put somebody up to talk to us about it and explain? And they, they'd sort of got the idea, and this is only an artist's impression of a patent that's actually very detailed, as you would imagine, uh, and doesn't actually show a picture like that, um, of, uh, of the possibility of this being built. And you have to say to them, just look at some of the issues, some of the problems, some of the challenges in this. This is long-term stuff. These are ideas, they're concepts. Nothing wrong with those, but you're not very likely to see in my lifetime passengers going on one of these things to Australia. Uh, but we wish them well. What's more interesting, and I certainly try, if I've been put up to speak to them, to guide them to the stuff I've learnt in this society, listening to and going to presentations and conferences. And they normally take about three days to cover all of the ideas that people have. Fascinating though they are. And that's a, an extension of supersonic travel. Supersonic travel that Concorde brought to us for 27 years. During that time, we were the only aircraft in the world that could do what we did, bar none. Military aircraft and everything else. Uh, we could fly at high speed over long range and carry 100 people. Nobody could do that. Um, passengers flying with us were a handful of passengers in the world sense, but they were farther from the Earth's surface than almost anybody else, apart from the odd military pilots and a few astronauts. Quite an extraordinary achievement. And it seems absolutely unbelievable that in 2003, uh, an industry like ours particularly, which, is, which is, thrives on moving forward all the time, actually parked the idea. And people can now not do what my grandchildren can't do, what we were doing 40 years ago. Um, it, it seems ridiculous. Uh, um, but maybe it's, it's reality. I, I'm not an idealist. I know that there's a real world out there. So we look at what, where the future might, might lead to, uh, and we've had many talks on this in this society, in, in the area of passenger, supersonic passenger travel. Um, and there are some basic questions that always crop up. I've, it, they get a lot more complicated than this, but they always come down to, as far as I can see, how many, how far, and how fast. Not how many aircraft, but how many passengers do you want to carry? How far do you want to fly? And how fast do you want to go? Um, and that's... A question you need to ask the designers, the builders, the people who are paying for it, and people who travel in it. And if there's a market out there, in Concourse Day it was for 100 people at twice the speed of sound across the Atlantic, there's almost certainly a market still. I was asked this today, uh, whether I thought there was uh, still a market out there for people who wanted to travel at high speed. Yes, there is. Speed has a premium. People will pay for it, people value it. We were selling time. And uh, the fact that you could arrive in New York an hour before you left London in local time was, to me, time travel. Um, but also, it's actually selling time. Less time spent strapped in an aluminium tube is good for you. So how, how many in the future, and again, in this room I've sat and listened to lectures, where it's varied between 250 and 350 as a sensible target number for the next type of passenger-carrying jet. How far, well, instead of transatlantic, trans-Pacific will be good, or Europe to the West Coast. And how fast? That's interesting. People have reined back from being too excited about this and saying, well, two to two and a half. Well, you know, improving a bit on Concorde would be enough. You're still saving half the time or more that you would take on a subsonic aeroplane. Now, that's the sort of challenging picture that I've got out of years of sitting in here and listening to presentations for a passenger-carrying um, commercial airliner. But I remember sitting in this room um, 10 years ago and listening to a very interesting presentation on the supersonic business jet projects. And the graphs were coming together. The graph of affordability and desirability <coughs> and cost were actually closing. And the figures thought 
that, that I saw that suggested that by 2009-ish, uh, they would be viable and people would buy them. And that's the sort of an example of, of the latest uh, design in the top left-hand corner, the Arian uh, SBJ or AS2. Um, and then, of course, 2008 happened, the great crash, financial crash, and that just made the graphs go in the opposite direction completely overnight. Uh, but it's coming back again, and the figures I've seen and that people suggest and people I've talked to in here suggest that that, that be, will become a financially viable possibility in the not-too-distant future. And technically, it may be more achievable, certainly, than, a, than an airliner. I'm saying all this not because I'm trying to depress you all, but because we need to face some of the challenges, and let's see whether we can address them. It's for the young generation, members of this society, members of our community, the young generation, to take on these challenges. They, are, they exist, and the opportunities are there. Some of the key challenges, these are just a, an arbitrary list, and I've given them some headings. The power plant is going to be a major issue. You're going to have to produce an aircraft that will lift a certain amount of weight off the ground, uh, heavy weight, uh, as quietly as it can, with, with as minimum amount of um, uh, damage to the local air quality around an airport, uh, yet still convert itself into an aircraft, into an engine that can propel an aircraft at high speed. There are designs out there. I went to one conference where there were 14 engine designs. Some of them were really exciting, and I said to people, how are you going to do this? And they said, I have no idea, but that's the concept. Um, but there's nothing wrong with having the concept. Barnes Wallace did it all his life. Uh, so the power plant is a major challenge. And if you can do that, make an engine that's actually economic subsonic as well as supersonic, then you can actually do a mixed operation, which we always had trouble with. You, we went subsonic, you double the miles per gallon that you, you halve the miles per gallon that you got rather, uh, out of the aircraft. That's, these are all linked and tied in, by the way, but the sonic boom, that limited where we could go, uh, obviously. And if you're going to use a business jet particularly, you could, business, the business community wants an aircraft that you can't, they don't want to be told, I can take you as far as the coastline and then we slow down and we, we do the next thousand miles at slow speed. They want to be um, able to go where they want to go at high speed. Now, if you build a the sonic boom is, is primarily, I know there's lots of factors for the engineers and scientists among you, forgive me, but this is, I'm a pilot. There's simple terms. It's, it's, it's dependent on weight and speed. So business jet becomes possible here. If you can keep the weight down, 12 seats maybe, like, the, like that one there, uh, and you fly at 1.6, 1.8 instead of Mark II, and then you take the, the, the um, engineering um, uh, uh, mitigation measures that you can do in the design and keep the down. Well. You could actually fly probably supersonically uh, and probably get permission. To, to fly over, over, over populated areas. It's not easy, and there's, there's a lot of technology to, to, be, to be developed. In the environmental side of it, noise and emissions come into the, the main brackets. There's lots and lots of factors, but they normally fall into local noise around airports, local air quality around airports, and emissions uh, in, in, the, in the upper atmosphere. Uh, they will have to be addressed. And when people say to me, do I think Concorde could still be flying today? Technically, I think it probably could. Um, Commercially, I doubt it. And I think the environmental lobby would have got us by now. Because when we came into existence, despite all the efforts of Tony and his people who were doing noise abatement work, um, the aircraft around at the day were noisy, and we could be quieter to some extent with a certain amount of imagination. But nowadays, in the last 40 years, aircraft have reduced their emissions, reduced their noise enormously. We would be competing in a whole new world. That has got to be addressed. And that links into the, into the power plant as well. And the final one I've said is, is commercial. Commercial is a, is a catch-all, really, is, is that how do you afford to build it? How do you afford to, to, to buy it? And what do you do with it when you've got it, if it's going to be an airliner particularly? 
the business jet's less of a problem because they will try and compete with each other to be and have the best business jet. There is a market out there for that. But if you're going to build an airline, what are you going to do with it? Um, if you're going to carry 350 people in a four-class aircraft, then each of them is buying the, the prime product, which is time. Uh, why should I pay for a premium sitting in the first-class cabin when I could travel down the back and arrive at exactly the same time? Unless you're going to keep me sat in my seat for two hours before you let me off the aeroplane. It's... There are serious commercial issues in there, which, and I remember talking to one of the major manufacturers about this who come up with some ideas, and they said, well, we'll have to get our heads around that. We haven't... No, they, may have, they may have done, and people may have done, but it's an issue that I think we need to address. There's got to be a market for it out there. We are constrained very often uh, by cost, of course. One of the things that's for certain is that no government, I don't think, is ever going to underwrite, pay for the cost of development. It's going to have to be funded on some commercial basis. The technical challenges, well, te scientists, technicians, engineers love a challenge. I think given the opportunity and the funding, they would address that. Um, the commercial side of it is, is a bit more complicated and you've got to get it, got to get it right. Um, but people do need and will pay for, I'm sure, supersonic travel, another generation of it. The financial side of it, as I say, it's been multinational, I'm sure. And again, I've been to events where I've, I've heard countries and companies talking to each other. I was at one where we asked a major European manufacturer, a country, and a major, uh, well, America, to actually pr jointly prepare a paper on something in three days while we were there. And they had so much trouble agreeing the wording of the first page. <laughs> that's something they could live with. How on earth are they going to... It's going to be a major job. And that's going to have to be driven by politicians. This is where perhaps they come into the picture by, by being a driving force, a motivating force. And let's try and get some fire in the belly of the people in the country that actually um, was there when Concord was being developed and produced. It was there right to the end. And why people in Reading, when they were interviewed on the local television when Concord retired, the reporter said, I bet you're pleased it's finally retiring so that you're not going to have this dreadful noise over you all the time. And they said, it's Concord. We don't mind. Um, and that was the sort, of, the sort of passion for the aeroplane that, that people had. So um, those are just some of my thoughts. No, nothing else but me, and I'm no expert, but things I've sat in and listened to and picked out from, from the people I've met and people I've listened to. So the future. The future might uh, have not ended. Um, what it does say to me is that Concorde was actually incredibly far-sighted, visionary. Uh, and it was an incredible, just reminds you what an incredible achievement it was of the designers, the builders, the manufacturers, the test pilots. And to bring us back to the gentleman I'm going to introduce in a few seconds, it brings us back, me back to them. So it reminds me that without people like Norman Todd, Brian Calvert and John Lydiard, who worked with the manufacturers to bring an aircraft that was brilliant to becoming a totally successful airliner, then we wouldn't have had the operation. I wouldn't have had a job. Uh, and uh, we wouldn't be remembering the events of 40 years ago. So, John, thank you very much indeed. And you'll be pleased to know that's the end of what you're going to hear from me for a bit, other than the fact that I'm now going to hand, uh, host the, um, uh, the question and answers session. So I'm going to start by in inviting our panel to join us uh, up here. And I'll do it, but when I call their names, perhaps they'll just come and take a, take a seat on, on the stage. The steps are at the far end. They're probably the best ones to use. Um, you use them at your own risk. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. And um, I'll do it by just actually illustrating who they are so you can see them very clearly. Um, you'll recognise that not many of them have changed very much at all. Um, the first one I'll ask, obviously, is... is um, uh, the key guest tonight. There he is, lurking in the back there. 
um, John Lydiard. John, would you like to join us? First wrinkling of flared trousers and sideburns in these pictures as well. This was 1975. Thank you, John. The second one, Chris Morley. Chris, you've hardly changed. Would you like to come and join us? On the... Chris is your, man, is your man to ask questions about navigation, and he'll explain the navigation and anything else as well. And, of course, he, along with John Eames and Tony Meadows and a couple of others, were the core of the training unit in in, in the, on the Conquer fleet. They trained people like me and a few other faces I see in the audience, uh, and we owe them a great deal. And the next one I'll ask to join is, is sitting, is, is over in the corner there, um, lurking under the engine of the mocker there, John Eames. He was, he was part of the team, as were Chris and Tony Meadows, who developed the training structure and techniques that actually taught us, who came later, uh, uh, to fly. And, and if you think, well, yeah, training, training. It was a brand new aeroplane with a new concept. It was supersonic. The first time uh, that I went supersonic in the aeroplane, for real, was with passengers on board with Tony Meadows, I think it was. Um, and um, the fact that they got their training so well and well organised, they got the simulator so good, it made it possible to do things like that. And it's a great tribute to the training department. It was uh, a superb setup. And to complete that, of course, I've just mentioned him, is Tony Meadows. Sat on the wheel there. Tony, if you'd like to join us at the front as well. <laughs> Tony was the, was the noise abatement guru. And uh, I'd be pleased to answer questions about, about the initial... Um, flight, but also New York, which was a real challenge. Dave touched on it, and Tony will explain it in more detail. And finally, just coming back on the stage to complete the panel, um, he's hardly changed at all. Um, <laughs> David McDonald, who was a flight engineering superintendent on, on that course, of course, as well. So. <laughs> right. We've got about well, as long as you want, really, within reason, but let's put it this way. There's some wine to be served probably around about 8 o'clock. So um, if you, we'll, we'll go on as long as you like and as long as you gentlemen are happy. So uh, there is a microphone or two microphones. Who's got the microphones? Uh, have we only got one microphone? We've we got two microphones. Where's the other one? Can somebody wave the other microphone at me if you've got it? You've got it there. Okay, who, stand up. Can I, can I see who's got it? Thank you very much. Okay, so hang on to the microphone. I'll call, I'll call the speakers if you get the microphones to them. We've got Sam over there and you over on this side. Uh, when, you call, when you put your hand up and I'll call you, you'll get a microphone. Just wait till it gets there. It's a lot easier. Uh, it will be switched on. It will come on. And, so, um, and the gentlemen here have microphones as well, so we'll, we'll take it from there. So who's got the first question for our panel for the discussion session? Chris. Chris Orlebar. Can you bring it down here? He sells a very good book, by the way, which I think is on sale today. <laughs> I have you. some unsigned copies, which I can let you have as well. A rare Chris. unsigned copy. I don't laugh at that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is more of a statement than a question. It's about the future. On the 3rd of February, just coming round the corner, I've got an undergraduate from the west of England University, to come and talk to us about the, at Brooklyn's branch, about the challenges of hypersonic flight. And 
I'm trying to encourage as many undergraduates, youngsters to come along and listen to this because this may well be the future. Reaction engines are working on a pre-cooled engine and he gave an excellent lecture and has won the Roe Prize and what's the other one? Brie Prize. I'm looking at Balthazar here and hoping to get some confirmation of that. But he, 3rd of February, you're all most welcome to come. He represents the future and will probably fly in one of these machines. I don't think I will. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Uh, uh, that was an advertising feature, which was unplanned. But, <laughs> but Chris has never been known to miss an opportunity to, to market anything. Have you, Chris? Well, thank you very much. But I'll turn it into a question. Does anybody want to comment on, on what the comments, the sort of questions I chucked out there on the, on the future? What, what, what do you think the future might look like? Anybody, any of you like to, like to comment? And just, just please chip in if you do. Well, it's just an off-the-cuff comment, really, but I think that aviation has always been about speed. Um, in economic terms, I think it's very important that, that you can actually get to a place within a day, they used to say, in the days of horse-drawn travel. But um, we, we certainly found on Concorde that um, when we talked to passengers, this is the time before the flight deck door was closed, that... Quite a lot of people, particularly at the top of industry, were making, making journeys and doing business that they wouldn't otherwise have done um, because it was so much easier. And in, in particular, if they took the opportunity to come over with us, spend a day in New York, and then go back on the overhead overnight jumbo, it, it made a very good day for them and they didn't get involved in lots of entertaining and all that sort of thing. I think with um, fast aeroplanes, it also opens up vast distances when you can do the same thing without being unduly tired. And if you can actually go there and back in a day, I believe Margaret Thatcher went there and back in a day to do some important business. Um, I went there and back in a day once because I wanted to be home for Christmas, but that was important <laughs> for me. Another question? Sam, please. It, during the um, 80s and 90s, I visited Boeing at Seattle several times, and I'm quite sure they were rather jealous over the success we had with Concorde. Now, if we look at the strength of Europe we've put in behind this and other projects, and the political situation in the world, would it not be reasonable to talk to Boeing or whoever in the States and have a joint effort. I'm quite sure that at least 50% of the passengers of that aeroplane were American and they would still support it. Anybody like to pick that question up or just comment on it or is it... No? If I may, I'll just say, historically, and if you look back over our commercial operation, 40% of our passengers were American. Um, Forty percent from the UK and the, the twenty percent from behind points, including France. Interesting enough, who came to the UK to fly on our airplane, uh, and we had uh, and, and kept right to the very end. And I think Mike will bear this out: the, a huge um, uh, American base as well. And we have talked. To, I mean, this country I know has talked to Boeing because because I've, I've talked to manufacturers in this country through the society links I've got. 
and, and we have. And people are talking to each other all the time. It's just that nobody's sitting down and actually committing to, a, to working like we did with the French when, when we signed the agreement with them in 1961. Um, and because, because of the various problems that are involved in it, um, it, which I sort of vaguely touched on. So, but yes, I think that is happening. I think it will happen. I, think I personally think that the future's got to be in collaboration because this is, the next one will be too big a project for any country to take on by themselves. A question here. Um, David Leomard. I'm really asking, um, asking for a comment on this. I'm, I'm making a proposal and saying, is it correct? Because I'm not sure whether it is or not, but I know you guys will know. Um, it seemed to me that, um, uh, that after 9-11 happened, um, there was a change in attitude towards travel uh, by the Americans particularly. And I think after that time, is it not true that the American, um, you know, that the number of American travelers on Concord um, dropped dramatically and that that was um, a major factor in the 2003 cessation. Is that accurate or not? I believe that is accurate, actually. Um, I think also that we'd lost when the two towers went down. I understand that there were a lot of business people that we were carrying normally who disappeared when the towers went down. And that was a whole lot of our load disappearing in one go. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and you're right, the Americans got very touchy about flying, and uh, yes, you're right, it did affect the, the numbers. Do you want to say that? I think, I think that um, there's a tremendous amount of truth in that. I think the 9-11 incident focused very much on the potentiality of terrorism, and that it was a very big factor. Um, but I think we knew that when we restarted the services. Um, there was that fear of terrorism, but at the same time, there was the big economic downturn, making it very difficult for people to justify buying tickets on the expensive aeroplane. And that, by that time, Concorde was very expensive. Um, but I think a third factor, really, was the f that once we'd done our deal, which was uh, Brian Walpole and, and Jock were very prime movers in this with the government, Concord for us on the New York route made a quarter of British Airways profit. And that's not bad with seven aeroplanes out of nearly 200 making a quarter of the airline profit. Um, but th most of that money was made on the London-New York route. Other people know more about this than I do. Uh, probably Dave does, certainly Brian Walpole and Jock do. Um, but on the other hand, the French, who kept the aeroplane alive in the early days, there was no enthusiasm at all in BOAC for Concorde initially, other than us pilots. When we were successful, they were almost disappointed. <laughs> but... Um, the French kept it very much alive, but in the end, and through the middle, they never really made very much money. Um, London, New York made a lot of money. Paris, New York, I think, broke even or something like that. Um, and ourselves, going to Washington, we broke even or something like that. So we had a problem with our partner. So I think that there was quite a withdrawal of support after. That was another problem, I think, um, for the continuing services, the joint support. 
Okay, another question, a specific question. Yes, it's, a spe it's different. Uh, same chap, different question. Um, I got a compliment uh, complimentary ride from British Airways um, uh, back in the, uh, in the 19, early 1990s um, from, um, uh, from the carrier. And um, after it, of course, all my friends were asking me um, what I thought was most remarkable about it. And conscious, completely conscious of my facetious reply, I said, the wine list. <laughs> oh, you did a Donaldson. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, the point is the wine list was phenomenal. Concord had its yeah. own cellar. Um, Jancis Robinson chose it, and she does know what she's talking about where wine's concerned. But I, I know what I thought was the most remarkable thing about that flight, um, uh, you know, from the passenger point of view. Um, I'm not going to tell you now until you've told me, each of you, what personally for you was the most remarkable thing about operating that aeroplane. We'll work along the line. <laughs> Tony. Which end? This end. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'll speak for Norman Todd, who's no longer here. Um, known as the crinkly-haired bomber pilot, his favourite thing on the aeroplane, I'm sure, was Havana cigars. <laughs> <laughs> it was. For me, it was the sheer joy of flying this aeroplane. Um, the kick in the back as you took off and the enormous performance and being being an instructor flying without passengers we could actually play around with the aeroplane quite a lot in fact um, as I expect a lot of you know Jean Franqui barrel rolled the aeroplane and so did someone else in the audience here <laughs> I won't say who that is Brian have you got anything to say <laughs> <laughs> Chris um, well I think the most remarkable first of all I must say I left the scene in 1981 so it's a very long time ago um, the, I think the most impressive thing that struck me most was the first few flights to North America which was to Gander two and a half hours each way um, I remember going to Heathrow in the morning it was dark the sun came up we took off we overtook the sun, we landed at Newfoundland in the dark, and the sun came up again. We'd seen two sunrises and two sunsets in one day, and one of the sunsets was in the east. Now, um, the astronauts do this all the time, every 45 minutes or something, but um, I don't think they see many sunsets in the east. They're all going the other way around. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. John? Well, I think probably not during the service, but my first flight on the Concorde, which was in uh, 1969 with Monsieur Toka, when, uh, with the late uh, Captain Andrews, who were doing the airline assessment. It was uh, just something completely different. First time I'd flown supersonic, admittedly only 1.2, because the intakes at that point hadn't been, uh, hadn't been uh, uh, commissioned. But that, for me, was really quite something after spending, oh, I don't know, nine years or more, and especially in the early days when, uh, in fact, we had a government that didn't want the aeroplane, 
we had senior management in the company that didn't want the aeroplane. So there were enthusiasts of us that were, didn't know from one day to the next whether we were ever <coughs> going to get the aeroplane. But uh, that was my best day. John? Yes. Um, with John, I, I feel that the, um, the first flight, the power of the, of the airplane, the acceleration, it was just a dream come true for me. I've been watching this airplane and seeing it in the air, and finally... I was there. I was doing it. it well, my hands were on the throttle. Um, the other hand was on, on the control column, of course. But, uh, <laughs> and then the, the first landing. Uh, the attitude of the airplane in landing is very much like the picture behind me. It's very nose up. And so we came around... And I was sitting in the left-hand seat. One of the test pilots was in the right-hand seat. And we touched down. And I was quite pleased with that. It was a smooth touchdown. And then I knew I had to fly the nose gear down onto the runway as well. And so I put the nose down a bit, and nothing happened. I put the nose down a bit more, and nothing happened. And I thought, my God, it's broken. <laughs> And I flashed a quick glance to the test pile, and he was sitting there quite happily. And so I put the nose gear down even more, and finally the airplane was properly on the ground. Uh, I mean, that was my first flight, and that is encapsulating, encapsulating the, my awe at being in command of such a marvellous airplane. And I think I felt that all the time that I was flying the aeroplane. Thank you, John. And Dave? Well, I'm going to give you two for the price of one. <laughs> I mean, I am not going to diverge from what Andre Tourcar said. The most magnificent part of the aeroplane were those intakes. Every time I did an external inspection and walked around those <clears throat> and just looked at the simplicity, the apparent simplicity of a rectangular intake, all sharp edges and angles, and marveled at how it, at 1,300 miles an hour cruise speed, could slow down the air to about 450 miles an hour so that Olympus could swallow it. I think that was magnificent. The other aspect is temperature. I still think a lot about that temperature. I did a test flight once out of Heathrow. The airplane had been out all night, and there was about that much, two inches, three inches of water, rainwater, trapped in a double-glazing interspace on a cockpit window. So I made a mental note. That was the first snag for when we returned. However, at 1.6, I noticed it start to simmer, and after a few minutes at Mach 2, it had completely boiled away. That... <laughs> Yeah, I know. We, it is funny. That's an amusing story. But we had an airplane where the duct for the air conditioning coming up to the flight deck was crushed. Now, obviously, it's just one homogenous volume. But nevertheless, the stuff that was being piped directly in ceased to be piped directly in. And that flight actually became totally untenable because of the heat. It is there the whole time. It, it embrittles insulation. It hardens off the hydraulic seals and make them leak. It hardens off tank sealant and makes it leak. Uh, but nevertheless, 
I would imagine that every time anybody designed a piece for Concorde, they automatically thought temperature. It was such a basic fundamental part. And it was severe. You could not live with it at all. And I'm going to give you a half now, just for the same price. I, I flew with my gentleman on the left, and one of the things I do remember and smile about, this was about 30 years ago, on the approach he said, gentlemen, I may be using up to 65 degrees of bank on this approach. <laughs> do you remember that one? <laughs> Is that where you're leaving it? <laughs> well, that's for John to say. Did he, and did you? No, I, <laughs> I, I, I said to my co-pilot, I might be banking up to 60 degrees. Oh, okay. That's all right. But I, I didn't quite get there. <laughs> we did have 100 passengers on at the time. David, when, uh, one of the things that I'm... If I can go on a bit. One of the things that I do now is to fly the similar simulator at... Brooklyn's Museum and we have paying guests that come and learn in 15 minutes how to become Concorde pilots. <laughs> it's due to the skill of the instructors, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, the thing that I show them is if we do anything a little bit violent, I always have to remind them that this, we are simulating a Concorde flight, and behind us there are 100 people sipping champagne. So you have to fly the airplane very carefully so that they don't spill their champagne. <laughs> I remember doing a charter where we manoeuvred quite violently <laughs> uh, on three occasions, uh, three sh different shows. It wasn't with you, it was with a, another uh, manager. And, um, and I was seeing the passengers off. I stood in the doorway, many because I was waiting to go to the loo. And the lady appeared ashen-faced. And I said, have you enjoyed that? She said, I spent most of the time being sick in the toilet. She said, but I've loved every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> said, it, just it just proves what you can do with, with people. You have, you have the comeback, and then we'll go to another question. Indeed, yeah. I, I promised I'd tell you from the passenger's point of view what I did find, apart from the wine list, what was most remarkable about it. The takeoff, yes, that's very impressive, the acceleration that you got there. But it was what happened when we got out over the Bristol Channel that impressed me most. Um, uh, the reheat kicked in, and off we went uh, on our journey towards supersonicism. Um, and uh, the thing that just amazed me was that there was that kick in the back, and it just stayed there. The acceleration continued and continued and continued. And, and that was, for me, the most impressive. And the thing I hadn't even thought about. Um, it wasn't shocking or anything, but uh, as, a, as a former military pilot myself, I was used to acceleration, but not of this duration. It was absolutely staggering. Thank you. If you could pass the microphone back to Kit. Kit, a question from you. Hi, I'm Kit Mitchell. Um, I was at RAE and, in fact, did the analysis of the cockpit vibration that David McDonald mentioned and sorted out what needed to be done about it. But my question, which is also to David, is I have been told that by 2003, the British Airways aircraft had got up to the hours that we had proven to be safe in the structural fatigue test that was done at Farnborough. 
it didn't mean they were unsafe because the test didn't break anything. So we didn't actually know the life of the aircraft. But could I ask, David, if that is indeed correct, and if it is, what you were doing in terms of inspection to make sure that the aeroplane was continuing to be safe structurally? Okay, well, <clears throat> when I was working, um, and possibly just thinking about life extension, I, and for other reasons too, I did a brief paper about um, aircraft life working on, I think, 1987, our busiest year. And I seem to remember that the first five air aircraft would have run out of supersonic cycles in... Um, it was 21 years after entry into service... But we were going to do uh, life extension, that is for sure. So the, the original 6,700 cycles would have um, expired by then. I gather after my time that there was a, a life extension up to about 8,500. I had anticipated it might go to 2,000. And this was based on the sort of dossiers that were built up. There were significant in-depth maintenance checks once a year. The intermediate check, it came in about 1,100 hours, and that was about a year's worth of flying. There was a dossier built up as those checks went step by step through all the airplanes. At 12,000 hours, there were the major checks, and they were really stripped down and everything examined. I would have been perfectly happy if I'd been working then to see um, an extension up to 10,000 flight cycles, something like that. And that was just a figure plucked out of the air. As I understand it, uh, there was nothing much wrong. I remember from the first few major checks, and this would be about 88, 89, we were doing a lot of drilling out of rivets in the rear fuselage, the French fuselage I mentioned, to crack-check the holes. And there's a figure in the back of my mind that was something like 1,500 holes, and the score was about 1,500 holes checked, cracks found two, and then they were filled with some special Boeing fastener. So everything was looking good. Moderate amount of corrosion, and the structure itself, when it was looked at in the major checks, was fine. So I would have expected it to have gone on a good bit longer, and I think as it was touched on earlier, it was moving towards the environmental impact that would have got us in the end, even if traffic had stayed up. But yeah, the airplane was in good condition, sure. Can I, can I just ask, that's what you're talking about was in my era as yes. flight manager technical. Yes. We got to the point that the, the, the cycles, just to explain if people are not sure, uh, they had a test rig which they heated and and, and, and bent and twisted and vibrated and did various things, then shrunk it again. And, and, and the, the idea was that each one of those was a, was a cycle, a supersonic cycle equivalent. And they'd do that until the thing broke. And the rig never broke, got to 20,000 cycles, I think. I'm right. Uh, and being engineers, they divided it by three. So they said, we warrant the aircraft for 6,700 supersonic cycles. And we got the first two aircraft approaching that, as you said, in 95, 96. Uh, and we started to do some research into it. The first thing we did was check the paperwork to discover there was a 15% error in the way sonic cycles were being recorded. So that actually gave us a bit more breathing space. And then we started to do investigations into the, into the skin, into the structure. Uh, we had strain gauges fitted in certain key areas on routine flights. We had some strain gauges and test equipment fitted, and we did some test flights in the aircraft. And what we found was that it was in remarkably sound condition. Uh, and so with the CEA's agreement, we put a task force together and we looked at everything. There were a few minor modifications we had to do. I can't remember, frankly, what they were. They were relatively small. And then we put 
uh, with the CEA's agreement, we actually put a rolling inspection programme into place, which pushed it up to eight and a half to begin with, with every expectation of pushing it on, on beyond then. And Mike sat over there. Did Mike, did it, did it, did it need to roll on any more before 2003? It could have done. It could have done, but it didn't need to, but I guess, because it would, it would, that was going to take us through beyond what turned out to be the retirement of the aeroplane. But it turned out to be an amazing, amazingly resilient structure and very dry because of Dave's story about the window is a classic one. Um, there was very little corrosion inside it. Have we got another question? For specific, oh, all of a sudden, <laughs> a flurry of hands. Um, I'll, our first one I saw, I thought my was over there. So if you wait for the microphone, keep your hand up and so she knows where to come to. And then question for the panel, please. Thank you. Uh, my name's Steve Lord. Um, and I had the uh, privilege to be a cabin crew on the Concorde from 1976 to 1981. Brilliant time. Even today, I'm, I'm occasionally asked by uh, friends, relatives, neighbours, uh, what the reasons for, the main reasons for Concorde's demise were. And I quote things like, uh, the Air France disaster didn't do any good, um, the high cost of fuel, uh, and I also say the talk about the environmental impact of the aircraft, especially whilst flying over land. Uh, with particular reference, of course, to the sonic boom. Now, not many people understand the sonic boom, including me. And my question to you is, have you heard the sonic boom? Yes. What does it sound like? Yes. Does it cause air vibration? I've flown on this aircraft hundreds of times. You don't hear any sonic boom at uh, 60,000 feet. What does it sound like on the ground? Does anybody know? Go along the panel. I think we, I think we probably all have experienced it. But I'll start with Tony. And, oh, start with John. Go on. Well, basically, um, when we did the Australian trips from Singapore, uh, they recorded them and played them back to us. And I guess it's probably like standing in a field with someone with a double-barreled shotgun standing about 10, 15 yards from you, firing both barrels fairly closely one after the other. And I'll tell you a story about it. Uh, of course, we went straight down across the Nullarbor Plain in Australia, and the environmental people, of course, as uh, usually get in the act, uh, were all up in arms. We were going to upset the Aboriginal people, and this was, couldn't be allowed. So they decided that they would send an official from the government out to sit under our track and listen to the supersonic boom as we went across. And he did this, and then they had this meeting afterwards, and they said, okay, minister, you know, you sat there, you heard the supersonic boom, what do you think? What do you think? He said, it wouldn't satisfy my kids on cracker night. <laughs> John? Governor John, have you got a, an experience of the sonic boom, Chris? No, no. Well, I, 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 it may not be, it may be apocryphal, uh, but... I understood that um, when, the, um, uh, when they were trying to get the route across Australia, they had to move it 20 or 25 miles west to avoid this particular town. And um, on the occasion the aeroplane came over, the whole population of the town went 25 miles to... <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true because I, I did that first flight and they, they did in fact do that. The whole of Alice Springs were there standing next to that minister, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I personally heard it when I was on holiday in Montserrat and um, 
the boom really, it, it is really just like a 12 ball, but I think a lot farther than 15 yards away, I would have said it was in the next field. It, it, it wasn't that loud really. It's just surprising, that's all. David at the end, the one Yeah, yeah okay. Um, there's a chum of mine in the audience here I used to sail with. Can he put his hand up? Are you there, Bill? Bill Johnson? Bill, do you want to tell him about what the boom sounded like when we were sailing back from Cherbourg? No. Okay. <laughs> Bill and I were sailing, in our retirement, were sailing back from Cherbourg on a beautiful day, a bit like today, but a good bit warmer, and we had discussed the possibility of being boomed by the Air France Concorde. But nevertheless, when it came, it was, I describe it as a very flat sound, because we were out at sea with nothing for it to flect from. It was two sharp, flat bangs, totally disturbing, absolutely disturbing. Bill was off down the hatch under the floor in a flash. He thought we'd hit a half-submerged shipping container. <laughs> and he was back in 20 seconds, looked up in the sky, and there was Air France. But it was too rapid, that sort of frequency, but a flat, very, very loud, startling sound. I was, uh, I was lecturing uh, at uh, Cranfield University on one occasion, and uh, I was describing our flight, or one of our flights, and uh, we used to fly on the route to Bahrain, just south of the island of Cyprus, and at Cyprus we had RAF bases, and occasionally I would talk to the people in the RAF on the ground there, and I'd say, um, when we go past, do you, um, do, you hear our, do you hear our sonic boom? And he said, well, sometimes we do. He said, uh, it sounds like distant heavy gunfire, which I thought, that's typical of the military. <laughs> and uh, so I... I gave this sort of example of the sonic boom uh, to the students in front of me, and after I'd finished my lecture, uh, one, of the, one of the students came up to me and he said, excuse me, sir, he said, I live in northern Lebanon, and when the airplane goes over, it is very, very loud, and of course, what he was suffering from was the fact that the, the boom that he was getting was a focused boom. Because if you're accelerating towards somebody, you get a, a double, or not a double boom, but the boom is uh, accentuated. And uh, in a turn as well, you're in an acceleration. Uh, and so he was getting this focused boom. So it was, in his opinion, it was very very loud. Okay, let's have another question from, uh, we've not been in the middle yet, so uh, can you, gentlemen, I can't see who it is, but can somebody get the microphone over to that hand there? <laughs> How much cooperation was there with Air France during the preparations for in-service? Uh, who would like to take that one? Any, you want, no? My reaction is very little. <laughs> <laughs> We've had almost no contact with the French pilots. Okay, and did that involve... But, uh, didn't, uh, I mean, Trabi and Trabshaw and uh, Turka, of course, yeah. got together quite a bit. 
But when the navigation was done, because they were going in a totally different route, you, oh, yes. your, your discipline there wouldn't perhaps cross bridge. Tony, did was yours, it? as far as noise, noise abatement was concerned, did you? Um, not, not directly. I mean, it was a question of each doing its own job, really. I think that the cooperation would have been at other levels, the people responsible for flights, the acoustic people responsible for noise. I think that the actual crews... Um, didn't come together very much. Um, I, I flew a little with the French, but not in the preparation stage. I, I was flying with them when, when we had the Braniff contract and they hadn't got enough English-speaking instructors, so I worked for them. Very, very helpful, very cooperative people, but um, they weren't really in, we weren't involved as crews directly with them in the initial stages, no. And we were, after all, let's face it, competitors. Is the only We'd have a drink with them in New York now and again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another one from the... Oh, we'll go to the back. We've not been up there for a while. So uh, maybe that gentleman there with his hand up there in the middle there at the back, if you could get the microphone up to him, straight in front of me. Keep your hand up. You'll know where to come to. Uh, Bob Hall. Lucky enough to have flown on Concorde twice as a fare-paying passenger, once into uh, Washington and lucky enough to have been invited onto the flight deck for the landing. But the second time was flying back from New York with that rather remarkable takeoff on uh, 3-1, I think it is, over Jamaica Bay. I'd just like to hear a little bit about that and how people worked it out for the noise abatement process. Over to you, Tony. Well, I guess that's down to me. <laughs> um, it really started in London, I suppose. Um, the whole noise abatement process we had to turn it from a, an art into a science, effectively. We, we found that when we did the first flights, that was the endurance flying and the initial flights um, out of London on service, that we weren't getting very good results. And we were very conscious of the fact that if we were ever going to get into New York, these, these results had got to get better. And... We had one big advantage, of course, um, which w was so on all aeroplanes, that you had um, flight recorders. So we could look at what went wrong on any of these flights in great detail. And we had three problems, basically. One was that um, in, in London, they insisted on a runway rotation rather than using the best runway. So given any reasonable sort of wind, we'd have always taken off on 2.8 left. But a third of the takeoffs were on 2.8 right, and a very large number on the easterly runways, which were hopeless from the point of view of noise abatement. So this was purely a political decision to spread the noise around, regardless of whether you made more noise over a community or not. So that was a problem. Um, we couldn't really do very much about that, although we did take air traffic controllers for rides on the aeroplane and all sorts of things, but that, that was something we had to live with. But ourselves, we weren't really very good at holding airspeed, and we weren't very good at throttling at the correct time. And there were all sorts of things involved, and um, we had to, for instance, specify the rate of change of pitch on takeoff, so so many degrees a second. If there was a turn involved, we, we had to specify the rate of roll so that everything was exactly the same on every flight. And opening up the throttles, for instance, all pilots would tend to open up throttles like this, you know. And that's 
variable. Everyone has his own little bit of artistry. So the throttles had to be slammed open like that. And then the engine acceleration depended entirely on the amplifiers in it, which control the engine. So it was exactly the same every time. Similarly, when we throttled back, instead of just edging it back to the right RPM, we had to bring it back like that to a mark on the throttle quadrant known as the throttle lever angle, and then the engineer could just trim it to the end too. So those two things then became precise and predictable, and the, the rate of pitch control became predictable. And for the, also with the timing, we had to imp improve the um, crew discipline, the inter interface, so that people knew what they were mo monitoring at any time. And probably the biggest factor, um, what, the thing that was new for us at the time, we had a, a, a digital airspeed as well as an analog airspeed. And as I'm sure anyone that flies knows, when you, when you, you bug on the ASI, rotate, V2, etc., and it was very tempting to then try and fly the correct speed for the noise abatement using that same analog instrument. And it, it just wasn't up to the job. So we, we trained people to switch as soon as you finish from those bugs onto the digital ASI, which was not only very accurate, but you could also see a trend on it very, very easily. And then people on other airplanes would think we were, you know, really shooting the line really when we said that in decent conditions you could fly virtually to one knot and um, this is all really quite important so that's the basis of it but when we come to New York um, everyone thought this was going to be an enormous problem but in fact we, it was a great aeroplane a great airfield to go to because the most normal normally utilized runway 3-1 left pointing straight at the community was potentially very noisy, and everyone knows that Concorde's a very noisy aeroplane. If you stood near on the tarmac when you take off and you feel the earth vibrate, you know, I mean, this is a noisy aeroplane. But you're going straight for the community, but then you can turn and actually track over Jamaica Bay. So this was a very good alternative. The only trouble was it needed us to turn very early, and... Um, Davies in his book Handling the Big Jets and uh, legislation had talked, I think he limited turns after takeoff to above 500 feet. Well, we wanted to turn at 100 feet. And um, so it was our job to um, develop a procedure for doing that and to prove that it was safe. So we tried it on the simulator and um, the aeroplane has wonderful flying controls and a wonderful auto, auto stabilization system so with everything working again you could turn with the right rate of roll very precisely hit the angle of bank very precisely and that was great but what about the engine failure case so we then had to fail the adverse engine surprise on the pilots we had to fail the auto-stabilization systems and all, all of the things that would have been critical, we failed. And, all, uh, and this is all unpredicted. The person flying didn't know what was, hap what was going to happen. And that was supervised by the CAA and by BALPA. So we had the pilots looking at it and the ministry. 
And at the end of the day, um, Davis wrote that um, it was absolutely safe to um, turn at 100 feet on this airplane due to the characteristics that it had and the training that we were going through. So taking this one runway, 100 feet, you're turning, and everything's fine, except that when you turn, you lose performance. So we had to maintain, uh, reach 2,500 feet at a certain stage. So that meant that, I forget the detail now, but we had to precisely reduce the bank. And then when you finish with Jamaica Bay, you fly over a narrow slip of land. And we had another cutback on noise just before that and picking up a radial. So in fact, in this pretty highly populated area, we're flying between two communities effectively. So New York was actually a good place. I mean, 3-1 left flown properly was probably the easiest uh, runway where uh, to achieve an acceptable noise result such that when we did the early trials um, with Jean Franqui and Brian Walpole was with me, um, it worked very well and they, they couldn't believe it in New York. They said, you know, what's going on? And when we did the trials, Brian and Jean Franqui were doing the flying and I was um, doing the PR on the runway and I had all the press and the environmental people with me. And they watched this and they thought it was a bit of a non-event. And then uh, I think it was a Pan American jumbo took off and they watched it and he went sedately ahead and he didn't do very much. And he said, the bugger's not turning. <laughs> so it was really, really uh, very critical of these people not trying. And when I talk in more detail about this to anybody, the one thing I say is that Concord made New York quieter. And that's because if we could... And on the first flight the noise reading was no reading, which means it's below their limit. So the first flight went extremely well, and it focused attention on the fact that if any other aeroplanes were making noise on those days, they couldn't be flying very well. So subsonic um, procedures were tightened up quite considerably after that, and I think New York became a quieter place. Thank you. Thank you. One last question. Where have I not been next? Well, you've had one, Chris. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go down here. Oh, hang on. Uh, where's the, where's the, you've got the microphone. Thank you very much. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, mine is a somewhat technical question to the uh, flight engineers. The uh, subsonic uh, range of Concorde was really very good, not much inferior to the supersonic range. Uh, what was done in terms of engine handling to get such a good result? Well, I, I, the figure I remember, and please correct me, was the subsonic range 25% or 30%, 25% less? Yeah, so the subsonic range, that's one, one aspect that would have been vastly improved should we have ever had the Concorde B model and one of the targets was to improve the subsonic performance um, so it was 25% less if you had to commit for whatever re technical reason the, to it the, the graph, the table that you put up seemed to be much better than that 
seem to be only about a 500 uh, nautical mile difference or so. That was my reading of it. Okay. As a rule of thumb, the 25% stands. As regards engine handling, um, then we were cruising, uh, we upped the sub-cruise from 0.93 to 0.95, and that was simply uh, auto-throttle in charge, just a basic auto-throttle uh, program to, to hold 0.95. What we did have, um, <clears throat> because we had a, this variable primary nozzle, we could then, for a given... HPRPM N2 vary over a limited range the low pressure RPM so we could get best matching between the two compressors throughout pretty much the whole regime and fairly late on in the aircraft development period before certification uh, they came up with <coughs> they call it flyover schedule which increased the N1 for a given N2 by a specific amount um, that did actually reduce noise, but it did add such a lot to subsonic economics. So from the drawing board, yes, there was more work done, but actually from execution, it was a sort of standard, standard autothrottle commanded to hold the Mach number. Thank you very much. I, I got a feeling from, would it have been on that chart that I showed the maximum subsonic flight. It was endurance, actually, not range. It was endurance, 6 hours 28. But there we are. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.